Please turn with me online or on paper to uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. So I've been saying, or I said earlier, today is the first Sunday after Epiphany. Uh, This is the Greek word for revealing, and it is uh, the moment on the church calendar when we focus on the life and teaching of Christ. Specifically, we focus on his person and work as Jesus is the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king of God's people. And what I like about the idea behind this season is how it follows the storyline of the four Gospels. The Gospels each have unique introductions that are followed by a revealing of who Jesus is. And each of the Gospels goes about revealing the humanity and the deity of Jesus in different ways. But they all end up with a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They all end up with the road to the cross. But the stylistic revealing of Jesus as God and man is unique in each of the four Gospels. So it's good that this time of year uh, we take a look at how Jesus is revealed in Scripture. And it never gets old because through the Spirit, Jesus is revealing himself to Christians in a unique way right where we need it. Now, it's also a season that I believe is ripe for evangelism, for revealing the good news of Jesus to those who have never heard or have never understood it or maybe even have rejected it. So, here now, Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, which is God's word, eternally true. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, The former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Please pray with me. And now, O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law, and grow us thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Amen. It's a map with places and names, or places and directions, but no names. A map with places and directions, but no names. The classic Steven Spielberg adventure, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, centers on a map. 
Indiana Jones and his long-lost father, Henry Jones, played by Sean Connery, are working together to find the Holy Grail before the Nazis. The older Dr. Jones has researched clues all his life that have helped him put together a map. And the only thing he needs in order to follow the map is the name of the city that's the starting point. Of course, uh, in, the, in the story, that means that his son, Indiana, will have to explore catacombs, face rats, and nearly be burned to find the name of this city. In forming a Christian identity, we sometimes have the opposite problem. We have a name of where to start, but we can't always find the other places on the map. The name, of course, is Jesus He is at the center of our Christian life. But you don't have to look very far to realize that people who have the name Jesus but seem to be using very different maps to get to the treasure of a Christian identity. And that's why we take time to work through the whole of Scripture to see Jesus Christ revealed. Not merely the name, but the person and work prophesied and fulfilled. Because we get lost in a lot of faulty maps in building our identity. The news cycle will give you a map. Your education, no matter how you have been educated, has given you a map. Your upbringing has given you a map. But even if you have uh, Jesus as the most important part of your map, does your identity rest on the Jesus revealed in Scripture? And I want to say, even the best maps are constantly being checked and corrected as we get better and better technology, finding them uh, more and more accurate. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, is a map that reveals Jesus as the ultimate servant. It's the first of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah, and uh, these songs are the prophet's map with places and directions, but because it's before Christ, there was no name. Now, on this side of the cross where we sit today, we can look at the servant songs. We can look at this first servant song and know the name Jesus. But now we must go back and look at this servant and build our identity around him as he's revealed here. We must build our identity on Jesus the servant. Because the truth is, God has served us through him. And we'll see how God has served us through Jesus when we look at the three things that make up this map. The description of the servant, the confirmation of the servant, and the expectation of the servant. The description, the confirmation, and the expectation. Okay, so let's begin with the description of the servant in verses 1 through 4. What we see first is humility and power when Isaiah describes the servant in verses 1 through 4. Uh, I always, man, whenever I preach on Isaiah, I always mention Alec Mateer, and this is a a devotional translation that he made of the book of Isaiah. I highly recommend it, and he also has written an amazing, amazing commentary. If you ever want to take a deep dive in Isaiah, you can't do better uh, than than this modern Scottish preacher who died a few years ago, Uh, amazing scholar, uh, godly, godly pastor. Um, Alec Mateer, in his commentary, says Isaiah is using a particular kind of understatement in describing the servant here. 
Uh, and this is what I mean by understatement. Let's say uh, you're out driving and an officer stops you and pulls you over and he asks, were you speeding? And you say a, a kind of an understatement. You say, well, I was not going as slow as the other cars that were near me, which means I was speeding, Right? Or if you're, uh, if you're getting a friend, you're cooking, and you're trying to get a friend to try a new dish, you'll say something like this. You'll say, you won't be sorry you tasted this, which, of course, means you'll be glad you tasted this, right? It's an understatement. Uh, so what is the meaning of the understatement in verse 2 when it says, he will not cry out loud or lift up his voice. He will not make it heard in the street. It means that he's not coming to boast or to serve himself. Those, uh, it means the servant is going to come and he's actually going to serve others. And those who are in a humble state will be served by a humble servant. And the humble state is described in verse 3 with a bruised reed and a faintly burning wick. Now, I usually try and limit myself to one book recommendation uh, per sermon, but I have to... I'm just going to give you this one today. There's an old Puritan named Richard Sibbs, and he wrote, I, st- I started to read this this week. Uh, it was a lot, it was, it was, uh, this is a lot of his works, but uh, this particular sermon, A Bruised Reed uh, and a Burning, uh, a Smoking Flax by Richard Sibbs, um, he meditates on just this, that idea for, uh, for about a hundred pages. Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty intense. So I commend it to you. If you're, looking, if you're looking for a Puritan to read in the New Year as you're putting your New Year list together, uh, you might want to go here and look at this. But the humble state in verse 3 is a bruised reed and a faintly burning wick. If you light a candle and watch it burn and then blow it out, if the, if the wick of the candle has been long enough, uh, you'll see a faint ember at the top of that wick still glowing while smoke rises from it. That faintly burning wick, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't create enough light to read by. It doesn't create enough heat to warm yourself by. The only, in, in a moment, it's just going to go out and it's going to be cold again. Now, is that ever a good metaphor for where you're at? Or where your family is at? Or maybe this week it's what our country feels like to you. A faintly burning wick. Not enough light to see by and only a moment away from going cold. But have you ever come across a candle like that and cupped your hands around the wick and very gently blown on that ember and tried to get a little bit of, you know, a little bit of uh, oxygen to it and then all of a sudden the flame comes back? A smoldering wick is no good. It won't stay lit. It won't give the benefits of the fire. But if you can get to it soon enough and you're careful, you'll have the light and the heat back. So then look at a similar picture here in the same verse with the bruised reed. Like the candle, a bruised reed is, is not good for anything in its present state. Uh, where this, is used, this word is used elsewhere in the Bible, it's really talking about things that are smashed, like a clay pot or broken bones. But this thing that is different is that a crushed reed can't be stood up again. But if it's still connected to the uh, original root system, I'm thinking like a stalk of bamboo, then it could grow again if you don't tear the root system out of the ground. And this is a good picture because life has a way of both uh, quenching our flames and, and bending us over and crushing us just when we thought we were standing tall, right? Life has a way of doing that to us. God says here that this servant comes along to serve you. He's gentle. He's humble. He's unassuming. 
Not trying to sell us something, not showboating, not rubbing it in the face of those who would contend against him. He serves you by restarting your fire with the gentleness of his breath. He supernaturally stands you upright again and causes you to grow tall. The servant is humble and comes to us in our moments of humiliation. The second part of the servant's description is his power. And listen to how Alec Matir, that I was just mentioning, translates verses 3 and 4. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In accordance with truth, he will bring out judgment. He will not smolder, nor will he bruise. So the ESV handles this by saying the servant won't be discouraged, which is a fine way to handle the translation. But matir is more literal here uh, because the same Hebrew words are used in both places, right? Uh, he, uh, a bruised reed he won't break and he won't be bruised. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out and he will not smolder. The servant won't cut off from the end a crushed reed and he himself won't be crushed. Now, in a later servant song, though, uh, in Isaiah 53, that's the more famous one. We, we read it at Easter most of the time. Isaiah is going to talk about a servant being crushed. And he's going to be crushed for our iniquities. And then the same servant is later going to divide the spoil with the strong. Now, the question is, how can the servant be crushed and not crushed? We're talking about something supernatural that has to take place here. A bruised reed would have to be miraculously changed to be able to stand upright and grow again. A servant crushed and then dividing the spoil, not bruised, is not bruised in an ultimate way. Jesus died on the cross, but something supernatural happened. He rose from the grave. In an ultimate way, death could not hold him down. And that same supernatural power that raised him from the dead is at work in those who are served by the servant. He stands us upright again and causes us to grow through supernatural means. He causes the smoldering embers of our lives to become flames again, to give light in order to see wisdom and to give heat to warm others. The power of God makes the servant impervious to the wind. It can't blow him out. It can't blow him over. He won't be put down to smolder. He can't be trampled or crushed like bamboo under a boot on a path. His life and his strength are meant to endure. And endure to what end? The servant will bring forth justice. And he won't just stop at justice for Israel. He's going to bring justice for all the nations. This servant, Jesus, has an enduring power that outlasts every injustice until justice, his justice, is complete. I like how John Piper puts it when he says, He will triumph over all the forces which bruise reeds and quench wicks. Now that's the description of the servant. We need to look next at the confirmation of the servant in verses 5 through 9. It's not enough to describe the task or mission of the servant. We want to confirm if this really can happen because, frankly, it sounds too good to be true. Now, when you see a movie trailer, right, you think to yourself, is, the movie, is this movie going to be as good as all the promises made in this trailer? Is the hero really going to be compelling? Is the story going to be formulaic or is it going to pull me in? 
Are the actors uh, really going to take me to another world, or am I going to be disappointed in their performance? I mean, you think all these questions when you see an intriguing movie trailer, right? I mean, after all, uh, movies, are, movies are always getting pricier and pricier, and now during the pandemic, we're deciding whether or not we're going to buy new channels to live stream movies. Uh, you have to invest your time as well as your dollars. Who can confirm for me whether or not this movie is worth it? Well, this first servant song can be a little bit like a movie trailer. You get through these first four verses and you say to yourself, who can give me confirmation about this servant described here? Is this servant worth the investment of my time and my heart? And that's why in verses 5 through 9, God speaks to give confirmation of the servant. He starts by giving his own credentials. God uh, speaks as the creator in verse 5, right? Thus says Yahweh, the one who created the heavens. He uses imagery here like a tent being put up. He stretched out the heavens and he spread out the earth. And he goes on to say, he gives breath to people and wind to those who walk in it. It's very poetic, uh, right? God does that thing where he uses parallel lines of poetry to say the same thing twice, being, I made you breathe, I put life in you. So first, why should we listen to what God is about to confirm for us regarding the servant? Because he made you, and he made this world that we walk on. That air that we're breathing belongs to Him. He knows where the tent pegs are that keep the sky in place. We should listen to Him because He's our Creator. And so then, what does He have to say about the servant? He gives us something very specific in verses 6 and 7. He's going to let us listen in on a conversation that He is having with the servant. What does he say to the servant that confirms him for us? This is three things. He says, you have the highest calling, you're my most intimate friend, and your service will mediate my presence to those who need it most. So let's go through these. He tells the servant first, you have the highest calling. I am Yahweh I have called you in righteousness. That's the highest calling. The first confirmation of the servant is that God called him in righteousness in order that he would do justice. It's as if he's saying, I commissioned you for your job because I have the highest authority to do so. In ultimate rightness, I have called you to establish worldwide justice. This is a higher commission than anyone else in Scripture has ever gotten. Higher than Moses, higher than the prophets, uh, higher than any of the servants of God up to this point. Now second, God says about the servant, he says, you are my most intimate friend. When I uh, read verse 6, when I read verse 6, I saw that it said, uh, take you by the hand, I take you by the hand. And I thought about parents, uh, times that I, uh, as a parent, you know, when the kids were smaller, grabbed their hand uh, in the grocery store and kind of pulled them before they could, like, you know, knock a pickle jar or something off of the shelf. Uh, and when I was thinking about him saying, I take you by the hand, I thought, that doesn't seem very kind. But then I read the next phrase, I take you by the hand and keep you or protect you, as it is in some versions. How do you take someone's hand in order to protect them? I mean, think about uh, a very strong image of it. Think about rock climbing, where two people are, are going up the sheer face of a mountain and they grasp each other by the forearms to make sure that they don't lose grip. 
Or think about a husband and wife walking to the car in a grocery store parking lot at night. He's pushing the cart. Maybe she has her arm in his. One is watching the bread and the eggs, and the other is watching the traffic. It's a sweet and intimate way that they take hold of each other. Taking hands in protection is a very intimate act. God isn't jerking the servant out of the way of danger. He's pulling him close because they are in this together intimately. Eternal Father, eternal Son. He says, thirdly, your service will mediate my presence to those who need it most. That's what it means when it says, I will give you as a covenant to the people. A person cannot be a contract, but a person can be the mediator of a contract. God's covenant is His personal promise for the good of His chosen people. The covenant story in the Bible unfolds, beginning with creation, but quickly moving through the covenant uh, mediators, Abraham, Noah, and Moses, all of these men, covenant mediators, they represented God to the people, and they represented the people to God. The servant here is a covenant mediator, but look how it happens. In verse 6, you're a light to the nations, and in verse 7, you will give sight to the blind, and you will bring prisoners out of the dungeon of darkness. I mean, who needs light more than a prisoner in darkness? Who needs light more than the blind? The sun, when it shines on the blind eye, that eye stays dark. But when this servant shines on blind people, they see. Only God can do that. So the presence of God is mediated to people by the servant, he himself being divine. So my question is, will you take God's word for it? Will you believe God's confirmation of the servant? The servant is God's most intimate friend. He has the highest calling and he mediates God's presence to those who need it most. And the question then is, does this meet our expectation of the servant? And for that, I want to veer off to Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, very briefly, because, you know, you may not be sure at this point, you may want some kind of an example of how this really works out, the brass tacks of it. Well, Matthew 12, 9 through 21 gives us that. It's Jesus in the synagogue one day, and a man shows up with a withered hand. And Jesus doesn't make jokes about his condition But the Pharisees, those self-righteous religious leaders, completely shame that man with the withered hand. They're either bringing him to Jesus or they're saying loud enough both for Jesus and the man to hear, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Very clearly this man's in need of healing. These guys are uh, at work in God's name and they're playing a religious game both with Jesus and this man as the butt of their joke. Listen to Jesus' answer to their question. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? He pokes a hole in their self-righteousness with a common-sense question, and he avoids their trap. But then Jesus takes it farther. He restores the dignity of the man. And he does it in front of the Pharisees. He says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? In essence, Jesus has said, you fellas treated this man like he's an animal in your game, but he's so much more valuable than you have eyes to see. 
And then Jesus tells the man, stretch out your hand, and it's healed. Now, I know many of you have heard this story before, but there in Matthew 12, verse 16, Matthew says that this story is a fulfillment of Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he goes on to quote our passage today, Behold my servant, etc., etc. Jesus did not break the bruised reed of the man's hand. He supernaturally healed it. Jesus did not snuff out the smoldering dignity of the man. He restored it in front of those who would have taken it from him. Jesus mediates God's power to someone who needs it most. Jesus shows God's justice by restoring not only the man's hand, but by restoring the man's dignity in front of these blind, self-righteous Pharisees. And ultimately, Jesus will himself, will submit himself to these same Pharisees to suffer death at their plotting. And he will do that to mediate God's presence to the whole world. And the most amazing part of that story is that even some of the party of the Pharisees, that breaks their heart and they're saved. And that means that if he can mediate God's presence to them, he can mediate God's presence to you, where you need it most. And that's the epiphany for us. Aha! Right? Jesus is the servant who can mediate God's power and presence to you when you need it most. A number of applications fall out from this. First, be united to the servant. Have you considered that God might delight to serve you? God delights to give you his justice. God delights to give you his righteousness through Jesus Christ. Have you received it by faith? Second, some of us need humility to recognize your need to be served and rest. What am I saying? Uh, you might be one of the kind of people who have a, uh, a need to be needed. And I'm not talking about the joy that comes when you serve and bless others. I'm talking about the burnout that comes uh, when a need to be needed becomes a meddling. Now, how do you recognize if that's where you're at? Uh, Here's how I recognize it in myself. You feel angry, you feel burned out, and you feel unappreciated by those that you're trying to serve. And if that's you, you don't always have to be serving others you can see that your need to be needed is a sign that your life is smoldering and on the edge of being extinguished. What you need is the servant to come and and cup his hands around your, your burning wick and gently blow through your life in order to help you stop and to reignite your joy. Now, thirdly and differently, some of you need an, uh, an opposite thing. You need the endurance that comes from the servant. You need to recognize that Jesus is both powerful and relentless. He is accomplishing his work in the world right now, and that work is going to culminate in his return. You need to recognize that you have been served by being given a great salvation. You know that the Lord won't allow you to faint along the way, and He is calling you to persevere in a particular area of your life. One area may be your time of personal devotion and prayer. Diagnostic. If your time checking headlines is greater than your time in the Word and prayer, it's worth asking yourself, what would cause me to ignore so great a salvation? I like to remind myself and others, blessed is the man who restarts devotions. 
Another area could be in personal relationships. And this one is harder because I'm going to ask you, who is your enemy and how are you loving them? To love one's enemy takes a supernatural endurance that you cannot fabricate for yourself. You need more of that area one time in the word and prayer that I just mentioned in order to walk more faithfully in area two that I'm talking about now. But we need the endurance of the servant in order to be able to do that. When we're united to Jesus, the servant to whom this map points, we grow in humility and endurance. If it's really the Jesus of the Bible, uh, you, you have to because it's a promise of God at work in you. And in him, you will have an identity that is more and more like the identity of Christ. You will have the highest calling in Christ. You will be God's intimate friend. Your service will mediate God's presence to those who need it most. In other words, those things that are true about Christ will be true about you. No, you can't die for someone's sins. But united to Christ, your life will will point others to Jesus who did die for them. So in that movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, eventually uh, they get the name of the city. They combine it with the map, and through harrowing adventures and evil villains, they come to find uh, the cup in the hope of drinking it and finding eternal life. Now look, the story of eternal life is true, but it's not based on a clay cup from antiquity. It's based on something more enduring, that outlasts every blip in history. Eternal life comes from the eternal Son, the true servant of the Lord. The description of the servant is that Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of both humility and power, power that endures throughout all time. The confirmation of the servant is that Jesus has God's highest calling. He is God's most intimate friend, and Jesus mediates God's presence to those who need it most. And our expectation of the servant should move us to ask some hard questions about the map we've been following and the identity that we're building. Where are you withered and in need of healing and dignity? Where do you need to grow in humility? Where do you need power in order to endure? As you build your identity on Jesus, don't just take his name but take the map He's given you in His Word. Pray for the Spirit to shape your heart, your mind, your words, to look and sound like His. Walk with other servants who are building their identity the same way. That's not groupthink. It's not not about Christian culture or subculture. It's about recognizing and receiving the identity of Christ as He gives it to you so that others might eventually describe your life as the servants. That the Spirit will confirm your life in the life of the servant and that your expectation for eternal life will rest on Jesus, the true servant. His humility and His endurance are the map that build your identity in Him. Let's pray. God, our Father, You've revealed Your Son, Jesus, to us as the servant who delights to mediate your presence and power to us. Grant that in him we may truly serve those you place in our lives, both friends 
and enemies, that the world may see our identity in you who we worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.